This is one of the most inspiring conversations I've ever had in my life. I've always wondered why every time I watch a movie like Braveheart or a movie like 300, it brings me to tears. It brings me to tears because it's calling forward the hero that resides inside me, that resides inside all of you who are listening. All of us are part of this mythic story that's unfolding before our eyes, and nobody has illuminated this and made the clarion call better than Del Bigtree did on this podcast you're about to watch. It's an unbelievable conversation. And if you don't leave this podcast feeling empowered and feeling like you have a purpose and that purpose matters, I promise you, if you stay and listen to this podcast, you will be filled with a fire from the inside. And it doesn't mean that you have to point that fire towards anything that we're telling you to point it to, but it'll be a fire of your own transformation, calling you toward your own greatness, to be the hero of your own story, to live your story, to sing your sacred name song. Let's go. This podcast with Del Bigtree is one of my favorite conversations of all time, and it's my honor to share it with all of you. Dell, it's good to have you here, brother. It's really great to be here, Aubrey. It's, yeah, it's an honor. Yeah. When did you really find yourself like first pressed into service? You know what I mean? Because you've been really vocal and I've become aware of you over the last three years since the start of the pandemic, really. Yeah. But I'm sure there's a, a deeper history of like when you were kind of first called to really stand for what you believe in, stand for what you feel is right, stand for what you feel is true. You know, I, I sort of want to give a shout out to my parents, actually. Um, I think it's something that we don't talk a lot about. Uh, it's so important how we raise our kids. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably the most important job that we do. And I was one of these people that was really lucky to be blessed with parents that were conscious, conscious about what they were doing. And so um, they raised me, you know, with an understanding of how spectacular this life is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, taught me to meditate when I was like three or four years old. I hated it most of the time I was a kid. Right. So I'm doing it with my son right now. He's like, dad, this is boring. This size, like one day this will make more sense to you, but I really need you to understand that there's a practice you need in your life to just sort of push out all the chatter of the world and get focused and listen one to your intuition. One day you'll do mushrooms and figure out where you're headed. When no, you're I haven't had that conversation <laughs> yet, but uh, yeah. uh, it, there, things like that absolutely were transformative in my life. And yeah. so I say that because, you know, my, my, my parents instilled in me like an idea that you could make a difference in the world and you should try to be making a, the world a better place. So all along the way, on um, the work that I've done, when I look back, I always gave everything a little spin, sometimes secretly when I'm working in television, it's really just wants an argument or wants a fight or wants to create drama. I always tried to use the the jobs they have working for CBS on the Dr. Phil show, for instance, or even then, it, then they created the Doctor's Television show where I really, so I won an Emmy Award there. But I used those opportunities as best as I could to try and promote the, the, the spectacular beauty of humanity in yeah. some way. Uh, and then, you know, obviously I get into this vaccine issue because I was tipped off the, of, of a whistleblower inside the CDC and, and uh, that was saying that they were committing scientific fraud in the vaccine safety studies. And I would say that that's the moment where 
suddenly I'd been sort of being careful and mm-hmm. sneaking a little bit of truth and love and thought into the work I'm doing and getting a great response on television. That's where if I'm going to move forward and tell this story, I'm going to piss off everybody that's ever loved me or worked with me, especially here at CBS. I'm about to really, in their minds, turn on them. And that was hard because I really did appreciate the journey I'd been on, all the successes I'd had. But taking on the pharmaceutical industry means I'm going to wipe out all of those that sponsored all the work I've done up until this moment. So that's the moment where my life changed. It's the moment where you had to make the sacrifice, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you telling the story because... I have a similar story, minus the meditation, Mm -hmm. you know, my family. But of course, my dad did send me on my first psychedelic vision quest. So he made up for it in space, you know, when I actually graduated high school. But there were certain elements, like my mother always had a philosophy, like we can't help everybody, but anybody who crosses our path or any animal who crosses our path, like we'll do our best if they need our our help. And that could be, I mean, I remember one time, there was a hawk that was clearly like wounded. And my mom was like, her philosophy is if there's ever an animal that's hurt for whatever reason, like we got to help it. And it's a big, big ass hawk. And it's, it's at our ranch in Dripping Springs and I'm probably 16. And my mom's like, all right, here's the plan. You need to go get this hawk. And I'm like, get a hawk. It's a raptor. What do you mean, mom? She's like, don't worry. I'm going to give you a kitchen mitt. And I was like, a kitchen mitt? Like, he doesn't have hot talents. They're just sharp. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. She's like, and I was like, what about my eyes? She's like, you should wear some sunglasses. So I'm out there with sunglasses, a kitchen mitt, and a piece of cut steak. And I like have it on my hand. And it turned out that the hawk was also like trained in falconry or something. It was a, it it just got injured. And so we like brought this hawk in. I named it Tony the Hawk and we rehabilitated it (laughs) and then brought it out. But it was always this feeling that life is precious. Yeah. And if we have a chance to serve life, we should. And then my father on the other side, you know, his integrity was impeccable. Yeah. He would make mistakes, you know, but he would always own up to them. Yeah. He would always, it didn't matter if he felt like something was right he would do it. And I think those foundational principles really then press you into service when you have that, when you have value that lives in your body and it's been instilled, then when you realize that the world needs your service, then you step forward. And I think it's probably very similar to why Bobby decided to run for president, right? Like if the country didn't need him, he would be happy, like, you know, running Falcons and hiking and cruising around and, you know, fighting for the environment or whatever else he was doing, but he can feel that, all right, now is the time where my country needs me. He's being pressed into his own service as he has been for the last, I don't know, most of his life in different areas, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, think what's amazing. And he says it himself. He said it in his announcement speech. You know, if you look at my life, I did not live my life in a way that looked like I was planning on running for Mm. president of the United States, you know? So, uh, He's and I think a lot of people try to say I was just reading New York Times today has got an article and they're trying to say he's running just on his family's name. Um, we have the honor of knowing him. I would say he's running on his family's moral code, on his yeah. family's ideals. And when you talk to him, you get to know him, you realize sort of like we're talking about, 
the way he was raised. His grandfather would make him, you know, you know, memorize an entire poem and say, you're not allowed to sit down at the dinner table tonight until you can recite this. Right. We just don't, we, you know, we really don't know what it's like to grow up in a family that truly believes not only we have service, we are going to be of, of high standing political service. They see themselves in many ways as a, as a royal family and an institution uh, to bring about change. And you look at his family members that started Special Olympics and, you know, wings of hospitals and, and things all over the world, uh, the Peace Corps. Um, when you realize when he takes on this mission, he's standing on the shoulders of a, of a, of a legacy and an ideal system that's really in his DNA. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really, it's, a, it's an honor to get to hear him tell the stories and sort of what he was socialized to believe about right. the world in his place. His children, you know, I got to meet two of them and spend a good amount of time with Finn and Aiden. And they're all, he's successfully, from everything that I can see, transmitted that same thing yeah. in his kids. And the, ki and the stories that his kids tell, like his kids were not pitching me on their dad, but yeah. they were just telling stories. Yeah. And the stories that they tell, tell the picture of a truly like a great man just a great man, you know, and it's, it's unbelievable from when, you know, one of his daughters was off, you know, working in a commune and, and he wrote her for five years, wrote her a letter every single day yeah. for five years as she was gone to know that, all right, you may be out here, you know, doing this, this service work, but I love you. And I'm going to write you a letter every fucking day. Yeah. It's like that, that kind of, that kind of integrity and that kind that's something that's, you know, sadly very rare, but also extraordinarily inspiring. And I think those little things, you know, everybody's like, all right, what's his stance on this? What's his stance on this? It's like, for me, it's like, what is he modeling to the rest of the world? Like, what is the example? Because most people, we learn based on imitation, right? So if we have our political leaders, the people who are on the news every fucking day, and they're being derogatory or they're being divisive or they're being inflammatory or they're being polarizing or they're being rude. I actually literally saw when Trump was president and I'm not like anti, I'm not anti like all things about Trump. That's not my nature. But what I did see is he modeled being rude to people at the very least, right? And what I saw was other people starting to model that same level of rudeness, you know, and being like, yeah. since when did you talk to a to other people or about other people like that. You know, it's like, yeah. it, it actually created something that was far beyond the policies and, and the different, and, and of course you, we can fairly criticize a lot of that if we wanted to, but that's not yeah. the point. The point is, is that people model character, like we model the character of our parents. You model the character of those who are in the forefront, the leaders. I mean, that's the idea of a role model. I mean, that's where it, a role model, it's yeah. like, how do we how do we actually exist in society in our family and i think people are under indexing the importance of that when they're looking at a candidate like bobby yeah i agree i mean just for a moment on on trump because i think that there's some things about trump when he got elected the one thing that i thought was you know and i hadn't voted for him at the that moment but i was i felt this sense of like real relief that Clearly, this was not the guy the machine wanted, yep. right? And right. I was questioning whether we had a democracy any longer or that our votes mattered. 
And to me in that moment, I said, oh my God, our votes matter. Like right. this guy is not supposed to be here. That, that I know for sure. Mm -hmm. And so on that level alone, it gave me hope that this system in America still works. I think what's interesting about Trump too, and you know, I remember once sort of having an experiment where I tried to watch one of his State of the Unions. And most of us are like, God, the way he uses this sort of this lack of language skills, it's really hard to get through. But I right. was like, you know, most of what this guy is saying as a policy, I actually find that I agree with. I right. just hate the way it's being delivered. Yes. It's really difficult. And what's interesting about it is he knows that. He, he is a genius in that he knew that negativity, you know, that attacks upon him is free press. And he really worked with that. And he's using a model that I understand very well because I've been attacked a lot for the vaccine work that I do. And there's a way to use it as fuel. And it's, it's the old adage, there's no such thing as bad press. Mm -hmm. and, and so he made himself the only thing anyone was talking about when it was him and Hillary Clinton. And this is, this is sort of our weakness. And we all as a society really have to get over this. I remember watching my Facebook. I was making Vax, the movie that puts me in the middle of this whole conversation at the time. I was sitting in a basement here in Austin, Texas with, mm -hmm. with Dr. Andrew Wakefield. But my Facebook was just constantly just, oh, my God, you see what this guy said? Because I was, I was a liberal, a staunch, progressive liberal liberal in that moment. So every one of my friends was liberal and all they did all day, just, oh my, look at the last thing Trump said. This guy's crazy. He's a lunatic. All day, all mm -hmm. day. It's all I saw. Never a quote from Bernie Sanders, never a quote from Hillary Clinton. Right. I just thought this guy's going to win because it's all we're focused on. He, he's all we know. And, but the point being is he used that negative. He knew how to use it. And I actually do think he finally broke the scale. He finally found a point where he created so much negativity, there actually was such a thing as bad press. He hit it. He pushed that to a level yeah. no one ever has before. And I got to give him credit for recognizing it as a mechanism. But now for those that are upset with how he's being treated, he's landed exactly where you land when you're playing the game that way. I think he, I think I have, I, you know, I tend to look at people and think they mostly mean, well, I think he cares about the country. I think he's trying, he thinks he's trying to do what's right. right. Um, but he is now wallowing in the sort of bile that he used as fuel. Right. And, and so what's, I think, spectacular about um, Robert Kennedy is that he is, he's speaking to what we really dreamed. You, you put out this beautiful post today. When we look at these capitals, mm -hmm. when we were raised with this appreciation for our country, you know, that we represent liberty and freedom and love and expansion and openness and, and connection with everyone. We are every race, we're every creed, we're every sexual decision you might have. And we stand together as a nation. I think we all feel like that was sort of robbed. Where did we lose that? And as people are starting to listen to how um, Kennedy is talking about the subjects, how he's addressing them, how it is so well-educated, it is so honest and clear, but coming from a place of also 
appreciating that I'm intelligent enough to know what he's talking right. about, it's right? Not Instead condescending of condescending and coddling. He's not, he's not trying to put it on a bumper sticker so that I, you know, because everyone's too stupid to understand this. He's really reaching to um, to his confidence in us to say, there's a lot behind this Ukraine war. Let's go into the history of it. Let's mm -hmm. look at what brings us here to this moment. Be honest about it. Let's ask ourselves the hard questions. It's what his father did, and he's said that many times. And I think, I think what is going to really be awesome to watch is how many of us in America want a nobility. We want a, a sense of duty and purpose. And we want a love of our people, all of us. Right back as our leader. Yeah. I mean, just to, to kind of wrap up, you know, wrap up the thoughts on Trump, I think, so I agree with you. I think Trump went way too far. I think it's just his nature, you know, mm -hmm. it actually, part of it might've been strategic, but also part of it is just his, it's his nature. Yeah. And, but what I see happening now is then the response, the anti-Trump movement, also went too far. Yeah. And I think he's actually benefiting from that right now, like all of the litigation that's against him. And people are starting to realize like, whoa, y'all are going too far. And it's actually helping him now how yeah. much, where he's a little more quiet, but everybody else is attacking him. And I wonder also if, you know, there's some of that, some of the momentum that we're seeing behind, you know, Robert's candidacy. He's also getting like, truly unfairly attacked. He has been for a long time, yeah. but now it's raising into public attention and getting a lot of attention actually. And I think that may actually be something that helps propel him as well is because we have a sense of what's, we have a sense in our body, like the word would be anthro ontologically. So like what we feel is real ontological, what we feel is real anthro anthropos in our own body. We, we feel it. It's like we're a tuning instrument. And when we feel that like, this isn't right, you know, we have a sense of that somewhere deep down that lives in us that's connected to the field of value itself. Yeah. And I think we see when, when things don't feel just, when people are being treated unjustly. And we can get confused for a while and we can scapegoat someone, we can dehumanize them, we can come up with all of these reasons to justify what's happening. But when you actually start to feel it, you understand. And I think that's what's interesting about where we're at right now is we do have two, you know, obviously Biden is the sitting president, so you have to say he's the leading candidate, but it really feels like the energy right now publicly is all around Trump and all around Bobby. Yeah. And it's just interesting to note that those are the people that I think the country feels like, all right, both of these people are being unfairly attacked. Yeah. You know, and, and look, that if that moment comes where Bobby wins the primary and you know, there's a debate. I mean, we're going to see a stark contrast in character. Yeah. You know, and I, and I really believe that's what we'll see. And, you know, I pray for that moment to come because that means that, you know, he's made it through this first very difficult hurdle to make it through the primary. I think what we have to put our focus on right now is sort of um, the natural corruption of bureaucracy, the swamp that really we all recognize now. Mm -hmm. And and what I think— That was another thing know, that people yeah. liked about Trump is he named the swamp. Yeah, he did. 
He named a swamp. I don't think any swamps were actually harmed in the in, during his no, presidency. No, unfortunately. No swamps right. were, no no, swamps were no. drained. Swamps swamp were replaced by sewage. <laughs> yeah. Swamp water levels remains, remained constant. Consistent. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no draining of any swamps. So just for people who are swamp fans, you know, don't worry. No right. swamps were harmed during his presidency. But, but I say that because I, I think what I'd like to say to Democrats and liberals out there, you know, and I'm still a card-carrying liberal, but I was never planning on ever voting that way again. I was so disenfranchised. And I think we have a, a moment where so many of us are so jaded, like we've just given up any hope that this system can work for us. But this move, the DNC right now, is actually playing, I think, a very, very dangerous game. I think this political system, it, when you, and I just, I, I, want, I know we both want to sort of get off Trump because that's not what this is about. But I believe that the, the DNC and the powers that be in this administration know full well that they've catapulted Trump into a mythical space by these these attacks on him, the accusations, the arrests of him. Um, this is on purpose. It's not an accident. They want him to be the candidate they're against. And it's a super, super dangerous game that we're all pawns in right now. Mm -hmm. uh, they, are, they continue to flu, you know, fuel this Trump derangement syndrome. We're blind to how dangerous this is. And then you think not only are you promoting this person that that many of us think lacks sort of the candor and grace that is necessary at this time. Um, but well, you're maybe also, he has the candor, but he doesn't certainly doesn't have the grace. Yeah, he doesn't have the grace. And and I and I would say, look, he was the to, to his benefit. He's the only president in my lifetime that didn't start another war and looked like he was pulling us out of wars. And so mm -hmm. I, I have to hand him that. But do I think he's capable of? you know, stopping this World War III that is being fueled at the moment? Do I want him at the negotiation table at this heightened no, he's space? Living, it's, he's, it's, living, it's, he's living gasoline and matches. nerve-wracking. He's living know? gasoline and matches. Yeah. So the way yeah. I see it from like, if I really zoom out Eagle's yeah. Eye vision, it's like, if we elect him, there's some compulsion that we need things to explode further. We need, you know, destruction for creation. There is a, yeah. there's a a prayer, a, a chant that I learned when I was in my darkness retreat. It was run by, you know, a, a woman of the Hindu faith. And she would bring us in with our, with our mindfolds on in the dark. And we would, she would sing a song full of rapture. And the song was basically Shiva destroys, so Brahma creates. Shiva destroys, so Brahma creates. And it was talking about this cycle of yeah. destruction for creation. And while I pray that we had enough destruction, you know, and like, all right, is this enough for y'all? Yeah, because if it's not, let's get Trump in here. There'll be yeah. surely more destruction, you know. And it doesn't even doesn't even matter about his policies. Just the whole country's going to explode in their yeah. own polarity and divisiveness. And if we need that, all right, you know, we need that, you know. But I I hope we don't need that. I yeah. hope we've had enough of that already. Me too. Look, God will decide. I mean, I yeah. I truly believe we are all just vessels here. We have to speak our truth. We have to stand up for what we believe in and that's what that's what we're doing here um i'm i'm gravely concerned that there's the potential that this could be the last president of the united states of america mm. i think that there are enough issues hanging in the balance right now that really threaten 
you know, this dream, this, this, this experiment of the United States of America, this idea of really keeping government at bay and letting people celebrate their independence and trying to develop a system where, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty, where you walk in power. You're, you're, this constitution of ours does not dictate what we do. It dictates what our government's allowed to do to us. It, it holds the, our government back and says we are endowed with rights by God that supersedes all government power. And there's this balance that is so close to being lost now. When you see, I think one of the major issues that 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 Bobby's dealing with is his censorship. The idea that we think it's okay to destroy the First Amendment, that there are people that have the dangerous thoughts or dangerous ideas that cannot be spread, the, the amount of people that are now carrying that in the United States of America is horrifying. It really mm -hmm. is horrifying. And this has been tested throughout time. You know, there have been, you know, Jewish people that have said, look, I am totally against that Nazi march that's happening in downtown, wherever in America, but it is free speech. There's been judges and lawyers that weighed in on this. Now, all of a sudden, because you have questions about a vaccine that's being rushed out to the public without proper safety testing, that is something that the world should not be allowed to hear. I mean, it really, to me, the bar has been lowered so much on this threshold of speech. And right. then you look at AI and what AI is capable of, central digital banking systems that will let the government decide what my dollar that I earned myself is I'm, what I'm allowed to spend it on. These things are not, they're not figments of our imagination. They're not conspiracy theories. They're not 20 years down the road. We're no longer saying, God, I hope my children, my grandchildren make the right choice there. It's literally our choice right now. Most of these things are in place that we watched attempted during the, the pandemic. Tracking systems, vaccine tracking systems. Now they're talking about, can they make this cell phone track my carbon credits? Is it going, like, we look at China, this, the, the things that I say in public, am mm -hmm. I speaking out against my government? You know, people can't get on trains in China just simply because they ran a journalistic, a journal article that spoke out against the government in some way. They've been demoted to the place where they can't travel. All of these technologies are sitting there the wrong leader right now, four more years of anyone that opens a door to any of those ideas, which I'm, I'm sad to say Biden is. He has opened a door to all of these ideas. Four more years of that. Wait, are you sure he can open a door? No, it's being open for him. And, <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, they're doing their best to make sure he doesn't trip as he goes through it. Right. But it really... I think so many generations always think, oh, this is the moment that was prophesied. And maybe we're that generation. Maybe we're just fools and it's all all gonna be fine I mean, twenty years we down got, the road. We got a lot boy. of we got a lot of evidence that this is that this is that time. Yeah. And I think we can we can kind of feel it. And I think you're right though, to name that this kind of apocalypsis idea and impulse is found in every generation. Yeah. And, you know, I guess there was an argument with nuclear proliferation that they had a good reason to believe it then. And we've kind of gotten over that mostly, although there's little flare-ups as yeah. Russia's engaged in different, you know, war activities, et cetera. But right now there's just so many different vectors. There's so yeah. many different vectors that are happening and we need somebody who can not just think in policy, but think in nuance, you know, mm -hmm. and actually say like, what's, what's the blue team want? What's the red team want? which are the corporate sponsors that have supported this campaign and will continue to support it. What do they want? Yeah. It's like, all right, how do I sort out this issue 
you know, in the best, most nuanced way possible. And I, I was reading the comments today on my post, which were overwhelmingly positive. And I think both of us have been surprised about the the positivity that's come out from when, you know, we speak about yeah. RFK's presidency. But one of them was like, well, you know, he's going to lose half of the country when he draws the line on abortion. And I was like, all right, I understand what you're saying. There eventually mm-hmm. has to be a law that's made. And I haven't talked to Bobby about his stance. And, and, and that's not the point here. But the point is that this whole idea of drawing a line is like, it's the really the wrong idea. I think it's people who are discarding the nuance that's necessary mm-hmm. to even approach and grapple with such a complicated, such a complicated situation. Yeah. You know, and it's like, that's what we're missing. We're missing the nuance of dialogue being modeled where everybody feels heard and somebody saying, hey, guess what? Life and choice are both values in the field of value. And we need to actually bring them both into the field of value and then weigh them against each other. Not say, I'm, I'm life, I'm choice. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, it's like, what about, what about like eight and a half month you know, eight and a half month abortion. Is anybody like really pounding the pavement? Like, that's cool. Like, no, probably not. Maybe a few on the very fringe. Right. And then is anybody like, you know, the other way saying like, you know, in, in the situation of a rape that's caught early? Yeah. Maybe a few say like life all the way, no matter what, but like most people have a really nuanced feeling of that, but we're being cattle herded into one way or the other and, w- and with weaponized language. Yes. That's meaning if you're this, then you're not that. If you're Black Lives Matter, it means you're not All Lives Matter. If you're All Lives Matter, then you're not Black Lives Matter. When actually both of those things, if you really look at it, it's nonsensical. Of course, yeah. both matter, but in it, but the words are weaponized. So it means, it, it means that you're choosing a team or a side. And I think the only way through is to actually like de-weaponize language step into the field of nuance, raise all of the values up together, address all of the concerns. And, and that's like, that must happen for us to navigate this chapel perilous, this we're between, you know, from the Odyssey, we're between Scylla and Charybdis, the rock in the hard place, the whirlpool and the merciless crags. Yeah. And we have to have a skilled sailor that can navigate us through making real-time decisions in moments. And, and that's what I feel, that's what I feel like Robert will do is he'll just, he'll make the nuanced decisions, the best decisions possible. And maybe there's no way to stop the ship from hitting the rocks, but at least we have a, at least we have a captain that we know like, all right, like if, if we're going down, I trust you to be the captain and we'll go down on the ship together. I think what I love about, you know, Kennedy is it's an experiment what he's trying to do. What he's trying to do is, is see if there is still an idea, if there's still a, um, a sense inside of us that you could run a campaign on what do we all agree on? We've been trained like rats to just get that dopamine hit over our, our rage and our offense to they finally found the thing that I'm against and that one thing makes him off the record for me. And every one of us has that. And the media looks for that to trigger that. We are living, we are in the end times of victim consciousness. 
Everything we are told is our identity now is what makes us a victim. It's what separates me from you. Mm-hmm. You know, we maybe have common ground, but that's not what I'm supposed to talk about. I have a di- different sexual perspective or I have a different color or we're a different religion. Whatever it is, we have a different perspective of global warming. They're going to find the thing to make sure that you and I can't talk to each other. Right. That's what, and I, I come from media. That is what is it designed to do. It's the easier hit. It's the, it's the, easier dopamine rush and it gets you more ratings and what Kennedy is trying to do is and say the algorithm and the yeah, algorithm it's not it. just big media we got to look it. at small media doing the same thing with the way that they yeah. algorithmically show you what's in your feed right yeah. so it's not only CBS yeah. and, and CNN and MSNBC and Fox is like yeah all right that's pretty obvious what yeah. they're up to but it's happening in subtle ways behind the scenes by what's putting us, you know, what kind of mindset, what kind of bubble we're being placed in based on these algorithmic acts, which actually, you know, they're really, I think they're just letting the system and the AI of the systems, whatever version of AI they're running in the algorithms actually just do what works. And I think if we start changing our own behavior and our own consciousness, we'll start retraining what those algorithms work. Or if, if, if the big players don't step up, then a new player will emerge that if we demand yeah. it by our actions, you know, vote with our attention. Like attention is the, is the commodity of all prize, yeah. you know, because attention can be monetized by commercials and ads and then the purchase of products. So if we give our attention to different things, we'll start to retrain the system, even like the, what we watch on the news or don't watch on the news, what we tune into. Like our attention is a precious commodity and it's like a vote that we're voting with yes. every single day. And that vote changes the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm doing it to myself. I find myself clicking on things and I'm trying to like, you know, take a moment to say, dude, they got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was gross. Was <laughs> like, how, you know what I mean? Did you really yeah. just fall for that again? Get, wake up, you're asleep. You're, 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 this is, you are, you're making decisions about who you are to some AI system that is judging you and you're not conscious about it. That's what they, that's, that's how it's all working. We've got to get conscious. Got to say, you know what? Ooh, that headline's screaming at me, but it's, 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 it's that trigger space. I don't want to start giving, I don't want to be giving my attention anymore, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and it really is where, this is why, you know, and I said it when we were together at a dinner recently, when Robert Kennedy Jr. walks into that White House as president of the United States, the only way he will be there is that we in humanity, we evolved, mm-hmm. that we actually got out of the shackles that we're in that are dictating our existence. We're screaming at as, as though it's being done to us, but we're doing it to ourselves. Every yep. choice we're making every day is imprisoning ourselves. Our hatred, our division, our need to feel vindicated or bigger or better than someone else because I am more, you know, evolved in some way. Robert Kennedy Jr. doesn't get elected by those people. Mm. He's going to be elected by people that are actually consciously saying, you know what? I'm tired of being triggered. I actually want to love my neighbor. And I want to love my brother. And I want to find, it's, it, you know, it's like a football game. We've, we've all been in sports on some level. Right. We don't all agree here, right? We have different religions. We have different things that get us up in the morning. But today, this is about, you know, standing for this team. It's about being together and working together and do your job. Get out of each other's, you know, crap 
just do my job, hold my place in, in society here, be a good person. And I know you're doing your best to be a good person too. I'm going to stop judging you and stop focusing on what we disagree on, but focusing on what we agree on. I actually, I did this experiment with my cousin. I have a very liberal family. He was the first one to jump ship, you know, back during like George Bush days. He was taking his kids down to the border to be like Minutemen. I mean, my like there was no one in my family could talk to him. They're like, oh, my God, he's got his kids carrying, you know, automatic rifles and blocking the border. He's totally lost his mind. And, mm. and I was in that camp. And one day I was passing to New York and I was like, hey, Norman, let's let's get together. And I, I went over and I said, I want to try something. Because at that moment, I was a bleeding heart, loud mouth, you know, ripping liberal progressive. And I said, I want to try and have a conversation with you. And here's the rules. We can talk about all the issues of the world. The only thing I don't want to hear is that you, I won't say it. You don't say who we think is doing it. There's no right. who. There's no, we don't get to talk politics. We don't get to talk news agencies. Let's just talk policy. What are your thoughts on Iraq war? And I was shocked. He said, I think that the Iraq war is just the Bush family trying to own all the pipes that all the oil is moving through and all of those lackeys so that they get rich and America gets fucked. I was like, holy shit. It's the same perspective I have. And we just went through it. And by the end of like a two hour conversation, I said, Norm, do you realize that we agree on at least 80% of the issues of the world? The only thing that has got us at each other's throats and unable to have a conversation is what news agency is telling us who's causing these problems. And they don't want us to have this conversation because if we do, we are a United States of America Mm. and we are that great nation. We have got, and this is, this is what is so brilliant about this experiment, is that Robert Kennedy is trying to appeal to us to start talking about what makes us great. What do we agree on? What do we share as values? And once we have spent all the effort and time, and yes, it's going to take effort to make that list, then maybe go over to our negative attributes list and say, is there something in this common ground that can feed into a more elevated dialogue about these things that we are disagreeing. Yeah. Yeah. It it reminds me of, you know, one of the kind of things that emerged as we start to recognize the real existential crises that we're facing is there's this kind of doomsday prepper mentality where it's like, all right, we're going to fortify our compound. We're going to get our food. And, and I understand that we got to take care of our families and I, I understand that impulse. But then at the same time, like, what about the hungry people at our gate, you know, who didn't prepare? Like, what are we going to do? We're going to say, starve, just, right. just starve neighbor. No, no, we're not going to do that. You know, we're going to, we're going to share what we have with our people. And, and I think that's ultimately what will emerge. So it's not, I'm not saying like, don't prepare and whatever, and that don't protect your family. I understand all those impulses, but even within that, there's this idea that the only thing that matters is my team. The only thing that matters is, is my inner circle of, of my tribe. And it's this kind of form of tribalism where it's, it can be included and also transcended. And I think sports are a great example of including the viciousness of competition and yeah. the identification of a team, but then transcending it. And I saw that probably never more clearly than when I lived in Brisbane, Australia for six months. And I watched a lot of rugby and there was rugby at all kinds of different levels. And they would go out and they would smash against each other. 
even do ruthless things like rake their cleats across somebody who was holding the ball too long and like yeah. brutal. But then they would all go to the same pub and they would all drink beer and, and like, <clears throat> they would just, even if someone was being that kind of ruthless out there, they would like clash a drink and like, you're a real, you know, you're a good cunt, you know, which yeah. was like, it's part of a loving word in Australia and yeah. part like right. also like, right. And and they would just have a drink about it and they realized like, all right, we're bound by the actual field itself, by the field of play, by the field. Of, like there's a deeper field underneath this. We're all rugby players. We're all Aussies, you know, and, yeah. and, and we can be vicious in this one moment in this defined finite game. But actually we recognize, we include that and transcend it to recognize the infinite game we're playing, the larger field that's at play. Yeah. And and that's that's something that I think we need to, keep in mind, we're not trying to eradicate all competition, all debate, all difference of opinion. This is a context for our diversity that's bound by a common field, by the recognition of something greater. And, you know, as Nietzsche said, we've killed God, meaning we've killed value. We've killed the source of, of the field itself. And you don't have to use the word God. You can use the field. You can use source. You can use the universe. You can use earth. You know, we, whatever you want to use is that word, but yeah. remembering that we're part of this common field and whatever nation we're in, whatever political side we're in, like we have to remember the field or we're actually going to just destroy the whole field and all yeah. teams lose. Like the only way that all both rugby teams lose is someone sets fire to the pitch. Yeah. You know, then no rugby happens ever again. You know, yeah. like that's, and that's kind of the place we're in. We're being pressed into a deeper understanding of the field. Yeah, I was just at a wedding on Saturday and the officiant said, you know, there's going to be those difficult times in every marriage. They always exist. Remember in those times to go back to what you love about the person. Focus on the good in them. Focus on all the things that you love because it's so easy to focus on the negative. In many ways, this marriage of, 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 of humanity and love and liberty and the pursuit of happiness is, is going through a divorce. It's going to destroy everything that we know and love. If we cannot get back to recognizing we still love each other. There's so much we should see in each other right now. Instead of everything is only focusing on the negative attributes we see. I mean, we're, you know, I don't want to be repetitive about this, but it really is uh, a serious problem for us. And I, and I think about, you know, I think about sports, I think about MMA fighting. I always, one of my favorite things about it, yeah. it'll taunt each other at the weigh-in. It looks like they're ready to kill each other. They go out there, literally try to kill each other. It appears to me, I've never been an MMA mm -hmm. fighter, so I don't know what it's like to be in that moment. But the fight is over and they like hug each other, crying like that. And yeah. it's just, kneeling, it's amazing. in front of each other, yeah. And one of the things, because I do a lot of work in Washington, D.C., it's very difficult dealing with politicians. But one thing that we really don't know is that is kind of how politics works. They all scream and yell at each other, whatever, get in front of news cameras, but they're all at Old Abbott's Grill having drinks and steaks with each other in the evening. And people can say whatever they want. They're all on the same team. But what bothers me is they don't show that part of the politics to the people. They don't show that they actually go and laugh and hang out with each other. It's bizarre to see it. It shouldn't be bizarre. If we saw that, in our news, we saw that there are actually moments where these two teams do get together. They laugh. They realize this is all some sort of big game. And we're a joke because they're not being honest with us. I, mm. I wish that the media would at least show that that does exist. Mm -hmm. It is happening because we are being torn apart as though these people just are fighting for everything. And they're not. They're, it's just it's it's 
more of a game than we realize. Mm-hmm. You it's know, a, and and a very high stakes game. Very high stakes. And game. and the only yeah, I mean, the only way that cuts through all of that is is the truth. And it's you can look at politics, but I also you know, people ask me like if you could interview one person from history, who would it be? There's this, it's the easiest answer in the world, and it would be Jesus. Mm-hmm. Easily, like like I don't I don't hesitate with that with that answer because what I would want to ask him be like. Hey man, what was your life like? What was your sex life like? Yeah. Like what what was what did you do in the desert? How was it when you spent those 40 days grappling with the darkness? Like what did you find? What did you see? What did you see within yourself? Because I've understand the self as you know, as Carl Jung's quote says that your leaves only stretch to heaven to the degree that your roots reach down to hell. Yeah. And so like what was hell like? What was hell like for you when you were going through that? Like what was the the humanization of it? So we wear these what would Jesus do? And I say we collectively as the people who do, but you wear those what would Jesus do little lanyard uh you know silicone bracelets. Yeah. But we don't know. Like what 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 would what we have some stories that were written many years later and you know largely probably manipulated by yeah. the powers that be. But like, what was it really like, man? Like, what was it really like? Because obviously, you know, he achieved a level of consciousness. We call it Christ consciousness. He achieved the level of the Christ. But yeah. like, what was it like being being you, man? Being the being the dude from Nazareth. Like, where did you go? What did you see? Some mystery schools along the way. Like, yeah. what other what other philosophies inspired you to feel this? Like, yeah. what was your relationship with the Hebrew faith? You know, like all of these questions. We have a very limited window on this person that we're modeling ourselves after. And that's part of the problem. And and one of the things that I see in this candidacy is we're getting led into his life. He just made a post. And again, this podcast will come out when it comes out. So it'll be like a month old or whatever, but he made a post where he's in his car with his dog on Father's Day. And people were asking, why aren't you wearing a seatbelt? And he shows his dog and his dog, (laughs) he calls his dog Attila. Because his dog destroys seatbelt, like the seatbelt. Yeah, he's from... Eats them, eats those seatbelt holders. And he's like, replaced them 20 times. He's like, look, this car, I just drive here when I go, you know, safely when I go to this place. And to hike with the dogs. To hike with the dogs is my dog car. And he shows the seatbelt thing. And it's like, oh, this is like real life. You have a dog that eats fucking the seatbelt receptacles. Right. You know, like, okay. And you might judge me. It's a perfect metaphor, right? You might judge me driving by that Robert Kennedy Jr. is a lawbreaker. He doesn't wear his seatbelt. He's giving the wrong impression to everybody out there. But you're not aware of the actual situation. He's a dog. He's replaced it 20 times. He's given up on it. I only drive this car five blocks to my hiking spot. And if you don't want to take the risk of not being in a seatbelt car, don't sit in my car. And no, Cheryl doesn't ride in this car. I mean, it's just, but it's, 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 it really points to, we make judgments of each other without any understanding of, you know, what is lying beneath that, you know, what is the real story? We're not, we haven't walked a mile in that person's shoes, right? It's sort of, that 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 old adage and it's these are the things that you know make a difference it's what makes him so awesome too yeah. like, is the fact that he's being transparent you know with these issues it's dangerous i mean he knows putting that out someone is going to say my god you just said to all the children we're trying to teach to wear their seatbelt that it's okay to not wear a seatbelt and i think it's fantastic yeah me too you know so i want to talk about the way that psychologically you've personally dealt with attacks, Mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of people who, if you are feeling this and you're like, man, I'd really like to support 
you know, Bobby, or I'd really like to support something that I believe in that's unpopular. You know, we experienced that during the whole COVID pandemic. We experienced how vicious people were when you started to speak your opinion. Yeah. What do you do? How do you personally respond? You know, because it, it's it's hard to get to a point where, and I've not found that you can be callous to the negative without being callous to the positive. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a place of retraction where you can go to a place of, I don't care about what anybody says. It's yeah. a place of like safe neutrality where you discard everybody, but that doesn't quite feel right either. So how do you respond to, you know, to the attacks and to the negativity? Um, yeah, there's, there's sort of several ways I, I could answer that. Um, a lot of it is, is how do you, how do you, how do you embrace your own ego structure, right? Mm-hmm. Something that I, I think a lot about. Um, I, I will say that I am not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. So just the Jesus thing, I think religion has messed up that story in many ways. I don't sort of want to go back and rehash that. If of you course. read the words of Jesus, what I know this guy did is he triggered a lot of people. And I always try to imagine if he came back what would that actually be like? I know every Christian's like, oh my God, I would like bow down. I'd be so psyched to see him. I'm, I'm pretty sure you would crucify him. I'm pretty well, sure. There's a very would, good chance you know, the first thing he would attack would be the Christian religion. Yeah. There's, I mean, and I'm not saying, look, I'm not a scholar. I don't know that for sure. No, but, we don't know for sure. But fundamentally, it feels like there's been right. and has been historically, right. you know, the antithesis of what he stood for being yeah. exemplified in his name. Right. You know, and, and so... Yeah, it's like, all right, you know, what would actually happen? And that would be an interesting, well, that would be an interesting experiment. Because I think the the truth and, you know, and not to wax too, you know, too much in this, but I think his main point was judge not that you be not judged. You do not have right. the capability of judging. Only God that all the nuance that is in life, you're not capable of comprehending it. So I would imagine, I'm going to probably, I'm sure I'm going to get someone in trouble here when I imagine it. I think Jesus would come back, probably throw his arm around some transgender person and say, you don't have the right to judge this person. Mm-hmm. And then he'd go over to a machine gun owning gun owner and say, you don't have the right to judge this person. I stand mm-hmm. with both these people because that's what he did. When I read the Bible, that's what he did. What he picked yeah. was who you think it's okay to judge, the prostitute in the room, you know, lest you have no sin, then you do not get to cast the first stone. That mm-hmm. is, and, and so that, I mean, that is where just to sort of, push on that a little bit. And so I, and I think about those things as I think about attacks on me or the judgments on me. What I know is that if you're attacking me, you just simply don't actually understand what I'm doing. It's not, I I don't need to take it personally. In some ways I see those as though a child is attacking me. You know, if Mm. my daughter at nine years old attack, like challenges me to something, it's not really that much of a challenge, right? Right. I'm going to try and be nice. I'm going to try and help you understand what you're not understanding about all the things you don't see in the conversation we just had or why I'm making the decision I am. I mostly see that in this space. For me, my wheelhouse is this vaccine space. I know for a fact I have read more studies on vaccines, how they got approved, what they went through. I had the number one most successful nonprofit at suing the government and getting these details. We have the Pfizer data, you know, from um, the the COVID trials because of my legal work, my legal team. We have the V-Safe data from the CDC. We're now getting the Moderna data, all of that. I've read, this is what I do. So if a doctor's attacking me, 
I simply think, boy, it's really unfortunate that you're wearing a lab coat and people trust you, but you haven't read what I've read. You don't really actually know what right. you're talking about. And we're seeing a moment where many leading authorities, Dr. Peter McCullough, the leading heart doctor in the world, has come over to my direction this because he started reading. Dr. Robert Malone, who invented the mRNA technology, is now, it's not because I'm right to have some great, it's the truth. Right. You just haven't seen it. And so how do we, it, it would be foolish for me to engage and get angry when all I'm dealing with is, is a lack of, of knowledge of someone that hasn't done the appropriate research and doesn't actually know what they're talking about. But on, I will say this because what you're talking about is how do we get people to be not afraid for the attacks that will come by saying publicly, I'm supporting Robert Kennedy Jr. or anything in their lives that may be controversial is a deeply held belief that they would love to come out of the closet and share, but are afraid what other people would think. And this is something that my parents were really focused on with me. I mean, I really was raised with, you know, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. That phrase is gone. We don't live in that society anymore. Right. We now live, all words hurt, they're punishing, they're brutal, and you should hate anyone that uses bad words against you. But I will say this, this is why, this is what carries me, is, is it really comes down to story when I had, and I don't know how many of your viewers really, and I don't want to tell the whole story of how I got involved with making Vaxxed and what that was about. But there's a moment where um, I had prayed. I wanted to tell this whistleblower story. I didn't know what was going on with it. And in an outrageous set of what I would call miracles, someone could just say they're, you know, coincidences within days of that prayer that this is a story I want to be a part of. I find myself in the basement of Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who had been working on a documentary about this whistleblower. I had no idea he had, and I'm watching his documentary. And I realized in that moment, it was a real epiphany moment, um, that this documentary will be seen by nobody in the world. It was important. It had 10,000 documents backing up proof that the CDC was committing fraud in the vaccine safety studies. It was all there, but it was so scientific, nobody in the world was going to watch it. And I realized in that moment, you know, a kid that never got vaccinated myself, I was raised with alternate health. My mom's like, why are you working on a medical talk show? You've never been to a doctor in your life. It's like, I don't know, mom, but it's really cool. I'm kind of like this Trojan horse in here. I'm challenging the medical establishment with the shows I'm doing, and I'm the top rated producer on the show. You know, it's, it, I don't know what's going on. And in that moment, I realized, oh my God, I think I was being trained for this moment. I'd always known there was something that I felt like I was supposed to do. And here it is. And my father, and I've talked about my parents, my dad was always like, go out and change the world, make a difference in the world. So he's the first you know, I actually called my wife, said, I'm about to ruin my television career and I'm going to get involved in this documentary. She said, okay, brilliant. Could not be here without her support, which is a huge part of it. But I called my father thinking, this is it. He's going to be so proud of me. I finally, in all these years, I'm now 40 years old, took forever right. to get here, found my thing. And I said, I'm going to make this documentary working with Dr. Andrew Wakefield, probably the most controversial doctor in the world on vaccines. And my dad said, don't do it. I was like, well, he's like, don't do it. Dell, I feel like I put you up to this. I feel like I told you you can make a difference in the world. And now you're about to do something that's going to destroy everything you've worked on. I think he said, I think I told you also, there are moments you should just lay low. You should just let something pass by. Don't be the target. Don't let the crosshairs land on you where you become the focus of a problem you can't fix. This is what he said. And I remember the moment he said, lay low. 
I'm on the phone. This really happened. It's such a like time stops moment. I, I, I picture myself like crouching down in this tall grass and I start seeing like these Nazis marching on a dirt road. And then I hear tanks and the rumbling of the tank wheels on the dirt road and the side-by-side motor, you know, motorcycles. As though, like, you know, all the images I got from movies. And I'm crouching down in the grass hiding. And right when I imagine that all of the footsteps, everything are going to disappear in the distance, they didn't. I started hearing them crunching through the sticks and the leaves all around me. And I realized they knew I was there. They were surrounding me. And I'm on the phone with my dad. All of this hits me. And I said, Dad, you also made a statement when we were growing up. You would say to us, you know, if anyone ever abducts you, if you ever grabbed and yanked into a car. I remember he started this when I was like three years old. He said, you take your first opportunity. You kick, you scream, you break, whatever it takes, but you give everything you've got at escaping. And he would say, do you hear me? Did you hear what I said? I said, yeah, take your best opportunity when you can escape. He said, no. I didn't say your best opportunity. I said your first opportunity. There is a difference. You must realize, and he said, we were taught, my dad was in the army. So we were taught that the longer the, the, your opponent, the longer they have you, yeah. the better they have you. Yeah. The moment you realize you're had, you've got to get out as quickly as you can. I said, similarly, dad, we are fucking surrounded. Yeah. All the problems that we said at the beginning of this, of, of this conversation are coming at us from all sides. They know where we live. They're tracking every damn thing we're doing. And so to all those people that are afraid to stand for the truth, afraid of what's going to happen, I want to say to you, you are surrounded. You are kneeling down in grass as though somehow if I don't talk about it, this is all going to go away. It's not going away. They're moving in from every direction. So the only thing an intelligent person does in that moment is doesn't continue to hide because the inevitable outcome is only they have you, you're imprisoned, and everything you dreamed about the future of your life is gone. The moment you realize that is what you're living in, you stand up in that grass, you take a moment to look at what's coming at you, you find the weakest part of that circle, you charge it, and you fight with everything you've got. And that's how I deal with this. I don't care what people see, say to me. I realize the moment I'm living in. Yeah. I'm living in the most important moment humanity has ever had. Everything our founding fathers fought for, all their, their life at risk. How do they do that? How does George Washington cross the Potomac when they're dying of smallpox and their toes are falling off? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you how. Because he realizes if he doesn't, he's fucked anyway. So why not give it everything you have? Yeah. There's something that reliably in every heroic movie, like I can watch The Notebook and I may not shed a tear. And it's not because I'm not compassionate for the love story and the, you know, star-crossed lovers whole story. Of course, I'm, I'm a poet, you know, I'm sensitive to that stuff. But it's not what's going to get me you know, in a moment where all the emotions come forward. It's when I see a hero mm -hmm. who is willing to stand like that, whether it's William Wallace in Braveheart or Leonidas in 300. Like, I can't watch that movie, even if it's the 50th time I watch yeah. it, without tears coming yeah. because I recognize that that's me too. Like, that's me too. I would do the same thing. And, yeah. and, and there's a, the tears come as a remembering of the nature of our true character, yeah. you know, and that's why the tears are coming now when I hear you say that, because I know that to be true and we can forget it and we can, for, we can get 
you know, kind of we can pretend that nothing is happening and we can pretend that it's all going to be all right. But when we actually really see that, see what's happening and understand our purpose and then also understand the continuity of our life, like William Wallace's actions. Yeah, he was ruthlessly tortured and killed and he didn't win. But Robert the Bruce came back and finished what he started. And if he didn't start that, it would have been a whole different story. And when you also understand the continuity of your life, that yeah. this is one of your lives of many lives. And for those people who doubt reincarnation is a real thing, yeah. look at the studies at the University of Virginia, please. Yeah. Like this is not, this is not an idea from some Eastern religion. This is now documented and it's mm-hmm. it's a real thing. So you see that there's this continuity of our life. And we're going to keep coming. We're just going to keep coming. And if this one, if, if this life, you know, it doesn't work out, we're going to go back, you know, in that other place, whatever that other place is, yeah. and look at the other souls, probably like we did 40 years ago or however long, whatever your age is, where you had your soul pod and you're like, yeah. y'all ready to go? Y'all ready to yeah. ride? Because there's this planet here that's so fucking beautiful. Yeah. Like the earth is just gorgeous. It's the best. Like, yeah. like it's the best. Heaven is available right here in so many ways. Yeah. If we just open our eyes to see it, it's so beautiful. It's yeah. so good. So you're sitting there going, do you want to risk everything to save this, to save this planet? Yeah. You know, to save this great mother? Of course. Of course. Of course you would. Yeah. And, and we're in that moment and it's about not looking away at this point not looking away from who you are yeah. and not looking away from what you're standing for. Yeah. Like really look at it and then find that hero that emerges inside yourself. And then, as you said, all the arrows that come, you know, you can be like, you know, Leonidas's Lieutenant when they say our arrows will blot out the sun and he just smiles and, and looks yeah. at his leader and says, so we'll fight in the shade. Yeah. You know, so we'll fight in the shade. Like, that's uh that's something that if if that's the way our life is, like as the Lakota used to say, like Hoka, hey, today is a good day to die. That's it. Like today is a good day to die. And I've always, since the moment I heard that teaching, I was like, that's how I want to live. And to be that also requires that you clean up all of your business. Yeah. Clean up all of your business. Make sure that you tell everybody you, you love how much you love them. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you share as much as you have. Don't don't hide it all in there, but lay it all out there. Like love experience life too like like treasure this beautiful world do all of those things so that when that hokahe moment that let's go moment comes you have no regrets and you can look at it and be like today is a good day to die and you can look at your your brothers and your sisters (laughs) and your family and your children and you can just smile and just say all right this is it this is it yeah and like we've lost that we've lost that Many of us have lost that and we're finding it again. And, and how beautiful, like what there wouldn't, there wouldn't be another time that I would ever want to be alive than right now, Mm-mm. because not only do we have access to all of the beauty, but we have a real reason to stand, yeah. like a real With reason a to stand. We have a purpose. Yeah. Now I, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to correct is, you know, I speak all over the, the country and even sometimes outside of the country and the people that will walk up and say, thank you for your sacrifice. I'm like, 
man, that is a bullshit line. And it's something that you have been fed that somehow that Jesus sacrificed. Like that that was a sacrifice. It was a painful, ugly life somehow. And, you know, I said, there is no, I mean, I wish people could live in my shoes just for a day. Yeah. In, in the shoes of someone that I see everything as opportunity. I see everything as a miracle. Even the things that go wrong, I'm like, this is all for my greater good. This is all moving me in the right direction. It's making me readjust. When I started seeing the world that way, that it's not against me, it's working to my benefit, it always does work to my benefit. There's no sacrifice here. I get to wake up passionate Every single morning, I, you know, I was a stoner as a kid. I could barely get out of bed. You know, I was like, where's my life going to go? I wake up at four in the morning now with ideas. I can't go back to sleep. I got to get on my computer. I got a plan for the day and I'm going until midnight because I can't stop. I'm so into all that is all that is potential now. I see potential everywhere. And all it took was sort of really just deciding I'm engaged yeah. I, have a, I, have a, I have a purpose here, and it is so beautiful, this life. And, and, and I think people will think, oh, well, you guys are, you know, your life is handy, it's gone. Well, no, I, I you know, the, the greatest pains in my life are the things I cherish the most. Mm-hmm. They're really, truly the greatest guiding functions. I don't think any of us can look in our rearview mirror. And, and look at, wow, look what I've achieved. When you try to think back, how did you get here? You don't really remember all the positive moments. You remember those tragic, horrific moments that reset your course and put you, you know, into a place that you're at now. And, you know, recognizing that, recognizing when it's coming, the pain's coming. Oh, this is going to be good. Yeah. This, is, this, is, this one really hurts. It must be dynamic what's about to be opened up for me. And again, going into this continuity of consciousness and the eternal nature of our soul, and maybe it's not eternal in that it's forever. Maybe at some point we do as the universe goes back and contracts after expansion and we homogenize back into pure source, whatever. But the eternity of our life that extends beyond this life, I can just imagine looking back and being like, man, that Aubrey life man, and just having a big smile from wherever that was, (laughs) you know, and just this warm feeling of like, man, that fucking Aubrey life, that dude, he really lived. He tasted the food. He had the sex. He stood for what he believed in. He loved people along the way. You know, he Mm -hmm. had amazing friends. He had amazing families, you know, like, like just that, that smile. And even if this, so if the, if the end was a, was a final heroic stand, just as we just as we look at the heroes in the movie, we'll look back at our own lives and be like, damn, like good fucking job, Aubrey. You did it, man. You fucking yeah. did it. And I and I if we take that perspective of looking back at our life, like people do at the end of life kind of life review or an NDE life review, I was blessed that that was a part of my first psychedelic journey. I recognized I went to this place where I was outside of my body and I got to look back at my life like a classic NDE life review and see all of the places where I fell from grace and see all of the beauty that I had and and really have to hold that and look at it. So I have this deep understanding of this phenomenon of life review and I know and I put myself in that position of at the end of my life or even beyond the end of my life looking back and being like, Aubrey, did you do it, bro? Did you enjoy yeah. it? Did you live? Did you fight? Did you did you really did you do it, man? Did you be Aubrey? Did you yeah. be Aubrey all the way? Yeah. And if that answer is yes, like like all the heavens will light up with my joy. 
you know, yeah. from that, from this life lived. Yeah. And it, it's everything. And I, you know, I was, uh, I mean, there's so much I want to share on that. I mean, just a, a weekend or so ago, I went to a, a meditating retreat, like did a, went to a retreat with a bunch of men, male warriors doing sweat lodges and we were doing breath work, you know, some shamanic breath work. And I got, I mean, that shit, you can oh, really yeah. just trip out. And in the middle of it, I just thought, you know, I was looking for pain or is there a guilt inside of me? I was like, man, I am so clear. I am so happy mm -hmm. to be alive right now. I like where I'm at. I like what's happening. I like what I'm involved in. I, you know, it's not all good. There's problems, but I'm sharing those problems with the person I had the problem with. I'm being honest. I'm open about it. And what else can we be? And it's funny you brought up the, it's a good day to die. I actually was on the doctors once when they asked they say, you know, you never get rattled. We want to talk about you on the show. I was producing the show, like some other producer, like I want to bring you on the show. And they said, how do you live that you're, you know, so, you know, calm in, in the face of all the insanity around here? And I said, I believe it's, you know, in the old Indian proverb, it's a good day to die. And like, whoa, this is a doctor show. We don't want to talk about death here. Mm -hmm. But I too share that same thought and I have it every night. Did I, was I good to my kids? Was I good to my wife? Did I speak my truth? And I really think for those people out there, one of the things for those, especially have kids, and I think that makes you a little bit more passionate in this space, but our kids are watching us. I mean, I, I yeah. really have to take account of that. And, you know, people will say, are you worried you might get killed in all this and all these things? And the only thing I really think about is my children. You know, am I bringing more risk upon my family and those things? And then I think their incarnation this lifetime chose to be here too. We all chose this experience that we're going through together. But I think, what do I want when I, you know, whenever it's going to be, whenever I die, what are my kids going to say about me? I want them to say, dad is passionate, man. He got well, up, at, believed at, in what he was what doing. Bob, look at what Bobby yeah. says about his dad. Yeah. You know, look like, yeah, he doesn't have daddy issues. No. His dad was killed when he was, what, 14 years old? Yeah. You know, like, it's not like he's working through the trauma. Like, of course, it was traumatic. There's trauma yeah. just in everywhere you look in the Kennedy, in the Kennedy family. But yeah. when he talks about his father, he talks yeah. about his father with pride. Yeah. And he talks about values, which values, which correlate to the capital F father, which I'm not making a religious claim there. I'm talking yeah. about the masculine principles of the universe, value itself, the pattern, pater, pattern, the pattern of value and structure of the whole mm -hmm. cosmos. And he could see that, yeah, sure, his father wasn't perfect, but he stood for value. So his father modeled the capital F father. And, and so what, when he talks about him and when the imprint that that made, like, yeah, all right, he didn't get to go, you know, see his high school graduation. That sucks. You know, I just lost my father this year. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it sucks. But nonetheless, like when I'm talking about my father at the start of this podcast, what am I talking about? I was talking about his integrity. Yeah talking about the values, about exactly. how he represented and modeled some right. aspect of the father. Yeah. And yeah, there was some shit that I got from him too, you know, his own neuroses and his own fears and his own, you know, sure, I got some of that and I've been able to work through that. And sure, there were moments where he let his rage get the best of him. And sure, I've worked through all of that. But the parts about, you know, your dad that you can really say like, dad, you showed me, you showed me a window, a prism, into into what it is to be a father yeah like really like you modeled something and and i think that's also something to for parents to consider it's like it's not about just kind of only just being there for the whole time because being there is great but if you leave an like indelible impression that 
this, this is how, this is how you live, my son, you know, and the stories that can be told, you know, that's the guiding principle that I think I'm not a father yet, but that's exactly what I want to imprint for however long my life is upon my children. It's like, man, dad really, dad really showed me a glimpse at what the father is all about. If you don't leave that impression, who is? And then what are you doing there? Right. I mean, I think so many people, and it's why I talk about, and it's funny, you know, this podcast will be later on, but, you know, yesterday's Father's Day. I thought about my dad all day, was taking phone calls all day, totally missed calling, so I called him this morning. But, um, yeah, I think that we, you know, we keep coming around to the, the honor of things. When you think about the spiritual life, I challenge myself. You know, I don't, and, and, I, and I can get into trouble with the Christianity. My dad's a, my dad's, a, I guess what you would call a new age minister, you know, um, brought in Course in Miracles and things like that. And I mm-hmm. grew up with friends that were Christians saying that my dad was Satan. I'm Satan. I get attacked every once in a while in the work that I do that somehow my perspective of Christianity is off. I do see it differently. I, I don't think the point of these representations in many different religions, these prophets from many different languages and religions that are trying to speak to us, I don't think we're supposed to be sitting here whipping ourselves and saying, I'm a sinner, yeah. I'll never, you know, I don't understand that. I don't understand what religion has done to that. I don't understand how that's what came out of that. We all have a cross on our wall, which is the demise of the human being, and we're not celebrating the resurrection, the ascension that rises above that, that sort of limits us in our physical body. I don't understand why I never hear in a church, every time I go to check it out, Jesus says, greater works than I have done, you shall do. Mm-hmm. If you have the faith of the grain of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Where is that in this right. conversation? Right. To me, Jesus was not saying, bow down and worship me and call yourself a sinner. You're a slug. You're a loser. That's where you need to be. What he was saying is, and if we got to interview him, I feel like he would say what we're saying here. Life is spectacular. It's beautiful. Don't worry about those attacks on me. I got that handled. You should see how many people love me. You should feel the love I feel when I walk into the multitudes, when I can raise someone from the dead and I can move people just because when they see me, they believe that I'm telling them the truth. I mean, all of that was, I think it was supposed, I mean, I believe that there was a representation. What would be the point otherwise to just sit here and wait for one human being that can come back and, and fix this whole problem? I mean, you know, if we were to, like, let's say we die and that's the only way we get to heaven. I'm in your, your neck of the woods, which is heaven is in the midst of us. That's what Jesus says. Mm. Heaven is all around you. The kingdom. You know, do you have eyes to see it? Do you have ears to hear it? That's what you've got to be working on. Because if you die in all your stupidity, you take to the pearly gates there, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to teach you how to be in heaven so you don't piss everyone else off and annoy the shit out of them because you didn't get how to be a decent human being. So where is that test ground where you learn how to be in heaven? This must be it. Mm -hmm. This is it. Get over the crap. Start figuring out how to love more, how to be there for everyone, how to stop judging your enemy, how to, you know, to pick up the person on the side of the road and be the good Samaritan and not care where they come from or what they believe in. But you realize they're your brother, your sister, they're a child of God too. And that's all that is really happening here. Try to be Christ-like. I mean, there are people that actually, when I say that, like, that's blasphemous. Are you kidding me? Mm. Are you kidding me that because I every day am going to make an attempt to 
embody as much as I can what I think I see in that story of a guy that was trying to be good to everybody. Yeah, I fail. And at the end of the day, when I check in on that, was it a good day to die? At least I can say I tried. I can point out a couple of places I blew it. I let judgment get the best of me. So tomorrow I get to try again. What I don't do though is wallow in my sorrow and my pain and my victimness and, and my ugliness. I just don't see the benefit of that. We're so capable of beauty, you know? And the more we focus on our beauty, the less the things that we do wrong or making mistakes with are actually there mm-hmm. because it's attractive. We're attracted to it. We keep doing more in that space. There's a, I was looking for it because um, I don't have it memorized yet, but, you know, my, you know, the, the mystical <clears throat> Kabbalist teacher that I've been working with, Mark Gaffney, he, shared with me a, a phrase from, from the Old Testament that translates to God desires your heart. Like God desires your heart, you know? And like that, that fundamental teaching is like, well, what does that mean? I mean, it means that he desires you to step into that heart-centered consciousness and love. Like more than anything, more than all the rules, like your heart, like the yeah. place, like the source point where we actually do know right from wrong, where value lives. Yeah. Like your heart is the, it's the feeling tone of the universe. It's where we actually feel love. You can say, all right, everything is love. Sure, but how do you feel that? You feel that through the heart, you know? And like this, this idea of getting back to heart-centered, it's also, again, not to beat this, you know, not to continue to go back to this, but I see that in Bobby. That's what yeah. I, that's what comes through is it's, it's a heart consciousness. You know, it's like, it's, he's seeing value. He's seeing the world through the eyes of the heart, which is the eyes of the Christ, which is yeah. the, it is what the divine desires. It desires yeah. from us to step into our hearts. Then what would your heart do? You know, what would your heart do in this situation? And yes, the mind and strategy, all of that is important. We can't ignore the 3D of the world and and the power actually of our third eye opening and our vision to be able to see how to navigate. All of that's important, but really coming back to that in the heart. And and there's also, you know, I, I can't help but share, after I did a podcast with uh, Dr. Robert Gilbert, he shared kind of a Rosicrucian model of the kind of forces that are at play in the cosmos. And as I let that sit in with me, I've started to kind of develop my own model of this kind of trinity of forces, Mm -hmm. you know, that have some Rosicrucian kind of basis, which I was completely unaware of their model, but I was always feeling that there was something off with the Satan and Lucifer and Christ discussion. And they actually placed that as the trinity and they have their own explanations. And I don't know if I agree with all their explanations, but I'm feeling it. And what I do know is, you know, Satan appears, I believe, 13 times in the Bible, 11 times as a verb, as the opponent, Mm. you know, or in opposition to, hasatan, in opposition to, right? And then so I look at that and I go, okay, I've discovered that there's a part of me that's in opposition to myself. It's in opposition to my highest calling. That is my inner Satan. My inner Satan is the opponent. It's what I've named the anti-me. Yeah. The anti-me is constantly trying to fuck me up. It's constantly trying to, you know, degrade my own, degrade my own thinking to draw me into fear or jealousy or all of this. This is my inner opponent. And yeah. I, it's not an external, maybe, yeah, okay, sure. You can aggregate that as some egregore of an external force. You can externalize anything internal that you want. 
But if you take it inside, like, all right, there's an anti-you that's trying to keep you from stepping into your full power. All right, call that Satan. You know, call, yeah. call that part of you that's in opposition to yourself, just like it was actually originally written, the opponent. All right, you versus anti-you. And that's a book that I hope, you know, I intend to write at yeah. some point is you versus anti-you because that is the opponent. And there's a, there's a sacred purpose to that because it's through this opposition that we actually refine our evolution. It's a, it's a catalyst for transformation. The anti-you, those things that are coming against you, they actually forge our character in a way. So there's, there's a greater gratitude for the opponent, you know, again. So, and that's bringing a little bit of like the, the vision, a higher vision to, okay, I understand like, you know, Satan, the opponent. And then there's Lucifer, which oftentimes gets conflated, but it makes more sense to me to disambiguate and say, all right, so what's Lucifer? Well, the light bringer. But in, in the Rosicrucians have their own model of what that means. But to me, the light bringer is somebody who's bringing you light as if you needed light, as mm. if you weren't the light. So they're bringing a false light. They're mm. bringing a light that says, here, let me give you some light being without light. And so it's this seductive trap that's trying to give us something that we already have. So it's all of the shiny allurements that we think, you know, make us better than somebody else. Some give us some moral high ground to make us better than another person that dehumanize somebody that, or, or stimulates our lower nature in some way and fills us with this false light, what Mark Gaffney would call pseudo eros, which is like the the thing that drives addiction. It's the hungry ghost. It's like, I'm trying to get this feeling every time I take this opiate or every time I take this, I get a little bit of this light. It's the Luciferian kind of allurement mm. of, of reaching for light, which is ignoring and saying, the light is not within my control. I need someone to bring me the light. I need the light bringer to come because I am this dissolute person. And again, that's part of the teaching, like we're sinful, the original sin, we don't, we're not light beings. So we need somebody else to bring us the light. And that's like the Luciferian principle. So you have that set up. So that's inside of us, that desire and also externalized where people always trying to give us light in this condescending way, like, and in a confusing, tricking way, like you child that don't have any light, let me bring you some. Yeah. And then there's the Christ, which like recognizes the, the, the true light that's within all of our hearts and the possibility that we all have. And so like looking, putting that in my own cosmological structure has been really helpful for me. And it's super fresh. This is like within the last week that I've come super up with cool, it. Yeah. It's cool though. Right. Yeah. And it, it seems to like, when you hear it, you're like, yeah, that makes some sense. I can kind of get behind that. And of course, that's blasphemous what I'm trying to share, but fuck it. You know, this is what feels, this is what feels true. Again, anthroontologically, this is what feels true to me to actually use these concepts and understand yeah. them deeper and see like, all right, how does this help me navigate through my life? Let's just get pragmatic here. Yeah. This model helps me navigate through my life. Like, oh, this is Luciferian. Somebody's trying to give me light in a way that is denying my own light. Okay. This is the, this is my inner opponent. This is the opponent that's actually trying to prevent me from stepping forward in, in the best way that I can. And then this is the Christ consciousness that is aware of all of these other forces, has love for all of these other forces, but is finding something, you know, within, within myself and it's available to everybody. It's, it's democratized. And that's another 
element of Christ consciousness that I think is super important. Mm -hmm. It's Luciferian, the moment that you say that I have the Christ consciousness and you don't, or I'm special and you're not, that's bullshit. You know, like we're all, we all have all of these forces within us and also externally. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I mean, when I was, I was raised with this idea that you could really just interchange Satan with ego in the Bible. That is the same thing. That's what it's talking about. It's that self-interested divider that that may prove it's right and 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 tries to serve itself all the time. But it's what makes you all alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, uh, you know, sort of to speak to when I when Vax first came out, and, and it's where I came, really came directly in contact with this. Um, Vax had come out. We were kicked out of Tribeca Film Festival, New York Times, watching all these newspapers, every news agency basically calling me a baby killer. This, this film is going to get children killed. This is the worst thing ever. It was really outrageous. And I had expected, I knew I was, ste- you know, I was, I knew I was stepping into this space and I pulled, I landed in LAX, um, one day, right in the middle of this. And I'm driving down the highway and suddenly like a, this cold black fluid runs from, like the top of my head down to my toes. And I am suddenly terrified. I am utterly, horrifically terrified in a way I'd never experienced before. And I, it was so bad. I couldn't drive. Like I realized, oh my God, I'm hyperventilating, pull over to the side of the 405 and I'm sitting on the side of the highway and I'm thinking, what, what is going on with you, man? And I was like, okay. And just, I didn't know why. I just said, okay, all I am is a filmmaker. All I did was put people in front of a camera. I put scientists and doctors and parents with injured children in front of a camera. I edited that together and put out this idea that a lot of people aren't looking at. That's all I did. The rest of this is God. The rest of this is bigger than me. It's mm-hmm. not me. This is what's happening around me. I'm just a simple person that 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 carried out a simple task. And I suddenly found... Oh, I feel better, like I'm breathing better, got back on the road. About a month later, same thing happened. Cold black fluid, top of my head, down to my feet. Talk myself out naturally the same way. But then I'm like, okay, something is planting a seed that's doing this to me. Somewhere, where is this starting? This is not happening just as I'm driving down the road. I'm doing something that is creating a fear I'm not paying attention to, and then it's blindsiding me. And I happen to... I happen to be, and I don't read the Bible all the time. I don't want to come across as some guy that's like really like that deeply involved. But I did happen to be in a hotel, like looking through a Bible. And I happened on the story of Jesus, 40 days in the desert. And there Satan meets him and says, look, you're starving. You can turn that. If you're, you know, if you're the son of God, you can turn that stone into bread. You can make water. You can bring down your angels to save you. Show, show me how great you are. And, and then you know, and I was like, it's an interesting passage. And I'm thinking ego. Well, that's his ego saying that because that's, you know, what I was thinking. And then shortly after that, there was a day where I had a very busy day. I was flying around and I didn't actually make a call to this senator that I that I meant to call because I thought I could shift his thinking on, on a policy he was about to bring. And I'm beating myself. I was like, I should have made that call. I have totally dropped the ball. And if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. How am I going to save the world? I mean, like all of these things. And then it hit me. Oh, my God. This is where it's getting me. This, this is where I am falling prey. It starts, it's coming from a good place. 
I am thinking that I am changing the world and all I do is important, but I'm saying I all the damn time. Mm-hmm. And I have forgot that I'm only just a vessel in all this. And it's going to take everybody and all of us if there's actually going to be change. And from that moment on, and you ask like, how do you, that is when I was afraid. Those, and I don't get afraid anymore because as soon as I start seeing myself say I too much, I go, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. You're doing it. You are taking responsibility when this is bigger than you. God is great. God is everything, you know? Yep. And um, and it's that humility. And it's what you said. You can't say, I am being Christ-like, you know? You're, mm-hmm. you're making an effort to be a better person. You're making an effort to stand in there. You cannot let your ego, which I think, you know, is sort of what you're saying, yeah. right? Yeah. is that thing that is trying to make me singularly alone. And that's what it was. I realized I said I enough that what's making me terrified is I'm suddenly all alone. It's so lonely, yeah. so incredibly lonely. And, and that's where I would say if I was to pass on a magic, you know, uh, an idea, it's faith. There is no courage. You can't have courage without faith. We are not big enough or strong enough or smart enough to actually deal with all the problems in the world that we see. And it's why so many of us are depressed. We don't have that power. Mm-hmm. But if you actually realize that all I am is a very important cog in a wheel and we're all in this, our brothers and sisters, we're all working towards a greater good. If we come together, then that divine intelligence that actually guides us, that's what's in charge. And the, and the divine you know? intelligence is what the algorithms are not calculating. Correct. It cannot beat it. You know, and that's the thing. And that's where the, that's where my faith resides is that, and every time there's a unbelievable coincidence, a serendipity that comes where all you can do is just smile and say, wow, God, universe, source, mystery, Wakantanko, whatever you want to say, you did it again. Yeah. You fucking did it again. Unbelievable. Yeah. And then, you know, those, those moments where you say, all right, yeah, all the algorithms point to Armageddon, you know, like all of them are pointing that way. But they're, none of them are calculating the power of a force greater than we are. That's, that's an intelligence of the cosmos itself. Like you could, you could you know, define it locally as the earth and how we're bound to it. Whatever you want to use as this higher power. But there's something, there's something that's driving through us that's making these coincidences happen, which are really miracles. And yeah. a miracle is that thing which cannot be explained by reductionist materialism and and all of these other ideas. And that's where I think all the algorithms are going to come up short and yeah. we're actually going to make it because there is, there right. is a force and there's free will. And so it's not a guarantee. We can't just sit yeah. back and say like, oh, God, no, you, have to, you, you have, have to do your part. You have to do your part. You have to sing your own unique song, you know, and that's where I think ego gets included and transcended. It's like, yeah, we do have a unique self. We do have a unique voice. We do have a unique perspective and a unique set of skills, a unique, as Gaffney would say, a configuration of allurements and a uniqueness to who we are, our sacred name story. And we play that part in this symphony of the cosmos, but there is a whole symphony and there's a conductor, you know, and it's not a conductor that demands that you play, but inspires you to play, you know, like raises his wand and then you are inspired to play your instrument a little louder, a little clearer, a little purer, a little more, but you're also listening to the harmony of the rest of the symphony. And like, that's, that's what we're not, we're not accounting for in all these algorithms and all of these kind of doomsday prophecies is that we got help. We got way more help than we think we do. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, I, I can, there's a million ways that that's true. You know, Vax got kicked out of Tribeca Film Festival. It gave me billions of dollars of free advertising. The whole world got curious. What is this story about? We just watched, we were just talking about, I know this podcast is going to be back, but to mark the moment, like, was it two days? You know, you know, Robert Kennedy reaches out to Joe Rogan. These two guys connect. They do their part. They do a podcast together. They get into all the details of the conversation. But what you can't account for is Dr. Peter Hotez attacking Rogan and Kennedy mm -hmm. on what just took place. Then Elon Musk jumps in to say, why are you attacking them? Why don't you debate them? Rogan saying, I'll give you $100,000 to your favorite nonprofit. Come in here and have a conversation with Robert Kennedy Jr. And now within a day, I think it's up around $2.5 million. People all saying, I'll throw in a hundred. I'll throw in half a million. I mean, that's, that's, you can't, you can't manufacture that to happen, right? right? We all, you know, everyone does their part, but then something outrageous happens that sparks. And now tens of millions of people around the world are watching this strange little skirmish yeah. on Twitter and starting to say, wait a minute, why would a leading doctor that's done nothing but make vaccines be afraid to talk to Robert Kennedy Jr.? I mean, as you said, as we sat down, do you have aces or not? Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. So they uh, called in that bluff. Right, did you just, are you folding aces right now and then expecting we're just going to hand yeah. the pot over to you? Yeah. You know what I mean? That doesn't work that that's way. It's like if he was really sitting on a hand, <laughs> right. you know, and, yeah. and everybody's pushing all in, yeah. you go, Oh, Let's do this. Full house, bitches. That's like, it. Here we go. I got the nuts. That's it. You know, and, and this bluff, you know, and we'll see where this ultimately ends up. Yeah. But what it really feels like is they called the bluff. Indeed. And then they found people that had the courage to do that. And also, side note, like, be mindful who you're fucking with. <laughs> like, there's the old, the old right. wisdom, like, let sleeping dragons lie. And I think there's this overconfidence that's coming in about attacking Robert, attacking yeah. Joe Rogan, attacking Elon, like these are dragons, yeah. you know, these are dragons, lions, whatever metaphor you want to use. Yeah. And that effort will only actually, you're going to call forth. And what I mean, it's not the viciousness of the dragon. It's not the savagery. It's just the full power. To me, a dragon means someone who's willing to step into the fullness of their own personal power that's connected. Of course, you don't have personal power yeah. if it's not connected to the field of power itself. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. It's the source of all power. And so when you, go when you go attack, not the false power, not the false power that you've generated from the separate self, but the power of the field itself, you're going to get a response. And I think yeah. that's collectively and individually in certain cases what's happening is they're waking up the sleeping dragons. Like, the, like that's what all of these attacks collectively and individually is happening. You're waking up the sleeping dragons and you're creating the fellowship of the ring. You're creating all of these people who may not normally hang out and get together and now like, oh, wow, the towers are rising. The orcs are coming. Like, let's, we got to band together and come yeah. together. And they're, they're forging, they're forging this new fellowship for Middle Earth. And I can't help but, in this mythopoetic way, think of Robert as the return of the king, like the true king of Gondor, who's come back to claim his throne. Yeah. You know, and, and this is, it's, again, it's just a metaphor. It's just an idea, but it feels like that. It feels like we're in the, we're in the Fellowship of the Ring trilogy, and we're in the part where the fellowship is being, is being formed, and Aragorn is, is finding his way back to, back yeah. to Gondor.
against to stand against the two towers. What are the two towers? I don't know. Maybe it's the, you know, the the techno feudalism that we're experiencing. Maybe it's the corporatocracy. Maybe it's the the idea that there's an intelligence greater than the highest intelligence that needs to control everything because people are stupid and we're smart. And so we're the world economic form and we're going to decide everything for yeah. everybody to do, or we're, you know, China and we're going to decide everything that everybody could do because we're smarter than people themselves. And this is, this is the legendary epic times that we're in. And maybe, you know, you're not Aragorn and maybe you're not Legolas and maybe you're not Gandalf, but we're all a part of this. There were so yeah. many heroes that didn't have names that stood, you know, yeah. and it stood in that, in that mythopoetic story. And so, yeah, fine. Maybe we're a foot soldier. It doesn't matter. Like we're all part of this. We're all part of this cause, you know, no matter what. And, and that's, I think also, you know, a part of, a part of what this message is, is you know, I'm thinking back to the, you know, the, the second part of this, this movie the two towers. And I remember Aragorn is, they're about to get overrun at Helm's Deep. And all of the, all of the, you know, people of the village are having to grab swords. And there's a young boy who's like 14, you know, and he's so scared, so scared about what's coming. But what is the, what does the, the king do? You know, and he, again, he's not quote king yet. He's still got to, yeah. still got to f- claim that. But the kingship lives within him, you know, just because he hasn't been coronated officially that he is a king. Yeah. He's been a king the whole time. And no, he says, act like one, you are one. You are you one. just rise to your exactly. divinity in your moment. And, and so he looks at that boy and he knows how scared he is. And, and he's scared too, you know, but he looks at him and he grabs his sword and it's just an ordinary common sword. And he looks at that boy and he says, he, f- he swings the sword around a little bit. He says, this is a good sword. Yeah. This is a good sword. And you see like a little bit of courage yeah. come from that kid, you know, and we don't see, it doesn't follow him in the battle. We don't know right. if he made it or not, but right. in that moment, he was like, I know, I know that this is, you're being called to a service that's greater than you, but yeah. this is a good sword. You know, this is a good sword and it's in, and this is a beautiful thing that you're doing, you know, and that's, that's the the kind of call. So I just, it's an invitation for everybody to realize like, don't be lost in what Charles Eisenstein would call the myth of scale and think that you don't matter because right. you fucking do. Yeah. And when you carry this truth as your sword, like it's a good sword. Yeah. It's a good sword and it's a good purpose and it's a good life. And so fucking go for it. You know, yeah. fucking go for it. I mean, all that you're talking about, you know, I think about like reading Joseph Campbell and the power of myth. We're in a mythic story right now. We it's, are. It's so brilliant. And I, I sit here pinching myself that, you know, you and I really only met recently. And part of, part of this incredible story is how we're all being drawn to each other. And it's happening all across the country, everywhere I go. Right. These things, these oppressions that were against us, if you want to focus on negative, fine. But how many of us really found out who our friends actually are, found new groups through this oppression of this COVID pandemic and realized there's some dynamic people I now know that rose up and met me where I was at, which was, I am not buying into this. I am not going to yeah. be... Uh, held a, a victim of a government I'm supposed to be in control of. And we realized how many had the courage to stand up. And we stood up. When I think about, you know, people will say, well, how do you have faith, Del? I mean, you can look at the horrors of COVID. I said, well, 
30% of the United States of America didn't get that damn vaccine. When they needed, you know, 90% of us to get it, they failed. And they did, they failed with $10 billion dedicated to the greatest propaganda machine the world had ever seen. Every news channel, every sitcom was talking about masking and taking vaccines and rolling with this and with no money. With, you know, with, with people like you and Bobby and me just speaking our truth. You know what? Truth just sounds better. It's that heart, yeah, right? God yeah. wants your heart. It comes from the heart. And it's what you said. No algorithm. They had all the best ad writers in the world and they're dancing around on Saturday Night Live and at the, you know, Academy Awards or whatever with needles on their heads. And they could not bring home victory because it was a lie. And now the whole world realizes a lie. Now the whole world knows that vaccine could never even stop transmission, is, which is by definition the only reason there should be a vaccine <laughs> if there ever was one. Right. You know and what I mean? Especially a vaccine mandate. Correct. Especially if it's mandated upon you. And we think that all of the guilting and the only way you protect your neighbor, you can't be selfish. They weaponized our compassion. They weaponized empathy against us and made us hate those that weren't doing their part. And now they all have to tone with that. I feel bad for all of my friends and family members and people that bought into that. Yeah. The reckoning they're going through right now, it is a gnashing of teeth. It's an Armageddon. It's horrific. Everything they believed in. And I don't blame them. Yeah. Whoever thought you couldn't trust Tony Fauci, the head of the NIH? Whoever thought your CDC would be lying to you that something does something that it does not? Who would ever think your president would take away your job if you don't inject yourself with some product that now we find out never worked and they never tried to see if it worked. I mean, this is a hard time for a lot of people and sure. I have compassion for that. But look at the 30% that stood up mm -hmm. and look at the, you know, how many of that other 70% only even did that because they were under duress. I'm going to lose my job. I don't know how to take care of my family. And when we think about what it takes to make change, you know, uh, we all just watched the pandemic three and uh, the great awakening that Mickey Willis made. And Ed Griffin has always said it's somewhere between 13 and 15 percent of a population, a passionate, driven, you know, part of the population that change makes all political change that's ever happened. We are so well beyond that now. We're past 30 percent. I think we're nearing 50 percent in America that are really realizing, my God. This machine is lying to me. It's taking away my freedoms, my choice, my mouth, my voice, my job. Mm. Never again. Yeah. Spectacular. And so we don't know. We don't know who's the Gandalf. We don't know who's the Aragon. You don't set out. Someone said to me, who's our Rosa Parks? As though Rosa Parks got on a bus one day and said, today, I'm going to go down in every history book. She just did what her heart guided her to do. Right. And there was probably a hundred other people that wouldn't sit in the seat either, but we didn't know they were there. We didn't know that they charged in with a sword and maybe didn't make it out the other side, but they were breathing and building into change. They were, you know, instruments of change. All any of us can do is show up. All any of us can do is, you know, pick up our cross, as Jesus said, and walk, leave the dead to bury the dead. Stop looking behind you. Stop worrying about where you came from. Look at what's right in front of you. It's spectacular. You're needed. There's a battle going on and victory is yours if you engage. Yeah. I think one of the beautiful things that the Star Wars, speaking of the myths that are underlie this, you know, kind of culture, like a deeper wisdom and a deeper truth that goes in was in Star Wars for the first time, maybe three movies ago, Finn, who is a stormtrooper, he 
takes off his helmet when he realizes what the what the empire is doing is wrong. Yeah. He's like, this is fucking wrong. And he has a panic attack and he takes off his helmet. And for the first time, the stormtrooper is humanized. Yeah. Oh my God, these are people. They're yeah. in there. They're people in these white suits. They're not just cattle to be blasted. You know, they're not just like the orcs or whatever, but right. actually there's redemption available yes. for everyone, for all of us. And, and that probably would even be a better telling of the myth of Fellowship of the Ring. I think he was probably still lost in some tribalist mm -hmm. ideas where the only thing to do with orcs is to slay them. And the yeah. only thing back in that, in that time period of the 80s was the only thing to do with the stormtrooper is to blast them. But actually, when you realize they're all people underneath there and that everybody has an opportunity for redemption, again, these are Christ-like principles of like, Everybody has a seat at the table. Yeah. <laughs> no matter if you were the most yeah. vigilant stormtrooper that was out shaming your neighbors and on the front lines of this vaccine campaign, like if you find and feel the truth and feel something in your heart and you have the courage to take off your helmet, you can be a hero. Just like Finn was, you know, in <clears throat> in supporting Ray and supporting the mission of the resistance. Yeah. And then and he was welcomed. It wasn't like well, you know, you were a stormtrooper, so you're going to be, you know, forever damned. It was like, no, all right. Like, you're welcome. You have a seat at our table. Like, come on. And I think that conversion of the conversion of the enemy into welcoming them in and, and breaking down this idea of good, bad, us versus them, like, that's also what's necessary and what's also available for all of us. And it takes immense courage. And you realize like, man, I was a fucking stormtrooper for a while, but now I've taken off my helmet and I'm wearing new clothes and fuck yeah, like yeah. beautiful. We need every single person like that. And we need to welcome everybody, you know? So I would have loved to see in another telling of, of, you know, Tolkien's story that the orcs get a chance to understand, all right, maybe we were forged of mud in the depth of the earth, but somehow the mud started speaking through us and somehow, you know, we found some common ground with the dwarves and actually we could all come together in this. And, uh, and I think the new myths that are told are starting to hint at that understanding of like, all right, like there's redemption available for everybody. It's the first principle and first value of my cosmos. So yeah. redemption is always, is always available. You know, to bring it back to, you know, sort of what, you know, brings us together is this conversation about Bobby Kennedy. One of my favorite parts of the Rogan interview when I was listening to it was when he talked about John F. Kennedy and the moment with Russia and Khrushchev. And you were talking about really the last time we felt like, you know, nuclear war was imminent. And he gave this famous you know, peace speech, which, which you know, um, Bobby's about to commemorate with his own statement on peace, which I think is really important. But what he said on Rogan, and, and I, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to do my best to sort of paraphrase, but he's far better at dates and, and, and sure. figures. But what he said was what my uncle did, he gave a very strange speech uh, in that. And, and maybe it was the most important speech he ever gave. And what he said was to the American people that always believed that Russia's our enemy and we're the victorious and we're the powerful and they're the losers. And we had this, he's like, I was even raised in it. And then I watched my uncle say, you know, you know we all act like America won World War II. And he said, no, Russia, Russia won World War II. 
And we don't realize that. And they paid dearly for it. They lost seven, you know, one out of every seven of their citizens died in that war. One third, like 30%, I guess, of their nation was leveled to the ground. It was like, it'd be like the East Coast all the way to Chicago or something being leveled to the ground. They were totally decimated and destroyed for the contribution they made. And we never even looked at them as having won. And now we judge them and they are just people. They're just people mm-hmm. that have paid a serious sacrifice. And it's, and, and, and Bobby's bringing it up now because how did Hitler come to them? Through the Ukraine, through this space that has always been an Achilles heel for them. And what have we been, this is what no one wants. All the neocons and everyone, they don't want to hear this. And even liberals now have become the same thing. You know, and you read the headlines, Bobby's siding with Russia. No, he is not. He is siding with humanity. Mm-hmm. We are the ones that have started this war. We put nuclear silos all over the borders of Russia. And if they did that in Mexico, we would be at war with Mexico tomorrow. And we would be destroying Mexico the way Russia is destroying Ukraine. And it's such an important message. And it's so dangerous for Robert Kennedy to be bringing this message to us because we are so brainwashed in choosing sides as though there's only evil Russians. Those are real people dying. There are real Ukrainians dying. And when you really look at what's happening here, it is clearly a proxy war between this idiot we have running our country and the one that is, you know, bullying around in Russia. And this needs to stop. We as human beings need to step up. I probably am going against what I just said by calling Biden an idiot. I'm sorry. It's not what I mean. What I mean is disillusioned people with the wrong perspective of who we are as brothers and sisters are making decisions that are getting innocent people killed, beautiful nations leveled, beautiful buildings and families being destroyed. And when you see the headlines in your newspapers attacking someone, pointing that out to us, as John F. Kennedy did, Russia is acting in their own self-interest just as we would. And if we cannot understand them, we will never be out of these forever wars. If we, you know, sure, we are going to have difficulties around abortion discussions. We're going to have difficulties around discussions about vaccines. We're going to have difficulties with discussions around climate and all these other things that are triggering us. But if we cannot put ourselves in our opponent's shoes, and let, let me at least try to understand, you know, that the dog is eating the seatbelt buckle and that's why this guy isn't where, let me try to understand that I may not be seeing the whole picture. Is there some common ground we can find? Because if we can't, everything is going to fall. If we can't come together as a nation, we are no longer going to be the beacon of light and hope and liberty and justice and the pursuit of happiness We are just going to be a warring, sick, disgusting nation like we see all over the place, guiding nobody anywhere, angry, frustrated, furious, and wondering why every time a new president comes in, they erase everything the last guy did or the last woman did, and they start all over. And all this ends up looking like is that house that started as a shack that added a kitchen and put a second floor. And it's crazy town. Mm -hmm. It's crazy town because we're not coming together. Mm-hmm. This is such an opportunity in this nation right now to put away Democrats, Republicans, independents. These are all religions. They're not human. Mm-hmm. They're not spiritual. They're not beautiful. We are. Mm-hmm. We are. 
This is a nation that still has enough in its foundation to allow us to find each other again. And I'm, I'm afraid that moment, that light is dimming on this opportunity to be spectacular once again, to lead, to embrace and show the world that we can actually come together. Yes, we have differences, but we see the beauty in this nation. We see the beauty in each other. And it doesn't matter what color we are or what race we are. We are not an apartheid state. We are wide open and we are powerful and more powerful because of it. It is such an opportunity right now. But man, we've got a retraining to do. We've got to get out of this, you know, this, 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 this rat, you know, you know, drug addiction. Yeah. We the have loose, that if you go back to the model, that Luciferian false That's light, you know, the, the false, false light. light and go find the, go find the light that yeah. lights up all things, the light of the sun itself that That's shines it. on all creatures and all plants evenly. You know, I mean, that's that that's the Christ like love. It's like I will warm your shores. I will warm your, you know, warm your waters, warm your plants, warm all your creatures, all of that. Like find a little bit of that, you know, in ourselves. And uh, fuck, man, this has been an inspiring conversation. And I know, uh, you know, we were we were talking. We had a beautiful dinner with Bobby over at my house. It was, you know, a, a stunning gathering of people and you know, one of the things that really does matter and does count, like if you feel moved by what you heard, like a donation really helps, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's fuel. It's like adding fuel to the, to the battery that powers the whole thing. And yes, you know, there's so much love and goodwill and volunteering and people doing things, but still like the energy of actually the resources to move, to travel, to actually share messages it's important, you know, it's important to offer that as well as your voice and as well as standing in your courage. But yeah, I mean, as Charles Eisenstein said, when he was on here, like make it like a sacred ritual, like let yourself be, let yourself be invested in this cause. And so if you're moved for that, whatever it is, $5, $10, $20, $33, $333, you know, $3,300, $3,300, which is like one of the, one of the limits for what yeah. he can actually spend for the primary, whatever yeah. it is. And there's caps on the, on the maximum, but whatever it is, like, let this be like a pledge so yeah. that when you look back at history, you know, and, and you see, you're like, yeah, you know, I, I stood, I went, I went and I invested and, and I made a stand and I picked up my sword, however, however small or however big it was. Like I did something when, yeah. when the world needed me the most, I did something and it's not the only thing you'll do. And it's not reduced yeah. to that, but it's a, it's a beautiful opportunity. It doesn't opportunity. define you. It doesn't define you getting involved there. It's part of what we do, you know, yeah. and let me just plug it. Kennedy24.com. Kennedy24.com. Go. And I would say this beyond just putting in five or $10, join the email list. And, and I want to say this about every candidate. I won't even say that you have to choose sides, but you should be connecting directly with every one of them. So their emails are coming in and then look how they're talking to you. Do they think you're intelligent? Do they think you're a part of this system? They, do they only care about money or are they giving you information? Yep. You know, how are they speaking to you? What are their policies? Actually do some work. 
these decisions right now are so important to let, you know, a, you know, $10 million commercial made by some Hollywood genius define and decide for you the choice you're going to make versus actually going out of your way, listening to an interview or for God's sakes, go watch his, go watch on his website, his speech, his announcement speech. It's two hours long. Yeah. Two hours of your life. I get it. We're all busy. Do it in pieces. This is literally a decision that will affect the future of humanity. Yeah. And give Biden two hours too. I don't, I'm not, don't and give Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and anyone you can think of that's out there, give them the two hours. They deserve that. They're putting their asses on the line. They're working really hard. They are doing this for a reason. Try to figure out what that is, what's motivating, what's driving them. And then ask yourself, who do I actually align with here? Mm-hmm. Who do I feel alignment with and act accordingly? Fund those people. We've got to engage. We, we, we cannot allow ourselves to be jaded now and say the system doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was saying at this men's retreat I was at, and they're like, I know where there's caves. When we need to hide, I, I can show you all where the caves are. I'm like, fuck the caves. I don't want to know where the caves are. I don't, I'm not planning for I, mean, I, I want to live in a world where I'm living in a damn cave and there's like fallout or whatever the hell is. That's the future for me and my kids? If that's what it is, I don't want it. Yeah. I'd rather, you know, I think of the Native American. Americans that would, you know, you, you, you would tie them so like pound a stake in the ground, you know, tie a rope around their ankle and stand there ready to fight saying this is the ground I'm, and I'm willing to die on. I'm not yeah. going anywhere. Right. I'm standing up. This is that moment. Deal with the caves when it's all over. All right. Maybe, maybe then you retreat and it is what it was. But for God's sakes, to be looking for your cave or looking for your way out and stocking your kitchen or your, your pantry with food so you can survive when the Holocaust comes upon us. Really? Really? Are we that? We got no other options? Right. Because there's no one in a history book that we have ever read that thought like that. George Washington, nobody, not Martin Luther King, nobody said, you know what? This is hopeless. I don't have, you know, I'm just going to hang it up and go find myself a cave. Every single page in the history books that we read, you will never read a story. We outnumbered them a thousand to one. The battle lasted five minutes. No one writes about that. Mm-hmm. Every history page is written and about every, dynamic every individuals up against insurmountable odds. Seemed like they had no chance. Out of nowhere, the Scots left the Brits and went over and joined, you know, the, the Irish or whatever the story. Something spectacular happens. And we're standing there to actually be able to say, I was there, man, to tell our grandkids, I was there. And you're reading about it in your history books. This is what that moment is. Okay. We're getting to write those pages. Okay, hey, my brother. Okay, hey. I love you, man, and thank you for coming on. This has been beautiful and inspiring. And it's, it's, uh, this, is, this is the feeling of hope that yeah. I think, and hope as a vision of the future. And I think it's so important to keep that vision of the future and to not allow the vision of the future to be the caves version of the vision of the future. Like allow yourself to hope, dare, 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 dare to hope, dare to have a vision of the future that's more beautiful, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Like we know it's possible. It's written about in every story. We know that the kingdom is available and it can, it can, despite all odds, it can, triumph over the forces of empire like we know that it's possible so dare to hope and i know that it's painful to hope and get your you know get disappointed but damn when you look back at your life at the end or at the at the beyond you'll say fucking a man 
I lived and I stood and, and what a beautiful life this was. This is a gem in the string of gems, the pearl necklace of every life that I ever lived. This one has a particular glint to it when I look back at it. So fucking hoka. Hey, let's go, brother. Amen. Yeah. Thank you everybody for tuning in. We love you. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning into this conversation with Del Bigtree. Of course, as he mentioned, Kennedy24, if you resonate with the messages that we're talking about, Kennedy24.com. But whatever it is, whether it's seen or unseen, know that as you support the field, as you step forward, all of those small internal little choices that you make Everything has cosmic significance and it's all recorded in the Akash, in the records of time. And you will know where you stood, what you stood for and how you stood and how you lived and how you enjoyed this beautiful opportunity we have to enjoy this incredible world. So live the most beautiful story you can possibly live. And let's fucking go.